Amen. I want to commend you guys. You sounded great. It was awesome. Like, give yourself a hand. That was fantastic. Really. Uh, and I think it's kind of illustrative uh, of what we're going to be talking about again yet today because, I, you know, I mean, if you're one of those I only sing in the shower people and everybody who's heard you sing in the shower knows why. Um, but, but seriously, but you sang today. It was awkward, wasn't it? Feels awkward. But you did it. Like, if you're one of those people and I talk to you, pretty frequently, you're like, yeah, man, you know, I, I'd like to be more expressive in worship. I just want you to know that in my heart, I'm like this, you know, but out here, I'm like, you know, but you're growing in that. That's kind of what we're talking about. And, and I say that because there's a death to you that you might follow, whatever it is that the Spirit is prompting you to do. That's following Christ. And I'm not saying you can't be a follower of Jesus if you don't sing loud or you don't raise your hands. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that following Jesus involves learning to understand his voice, to feel his promptings, and even when it's awkward, dying to the awkwardness of it and being obedient to him. Several weeks ago now, when we were way back in Luke chapter 9, we came across a statement that ever since then we've been talking about. It's like Luke gives us this statement in Luke chapter 9, and then he spends 41% of his entire book showing us what it means. The statement is this, if anyone would come after me, it is a statement of following Christ. Jesus himself is saying this, you want to be my disciple? Here's what it looks like. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He has to decide once and for all to get off the fence and into the game. This is who I am, a follower of Jesus. He must deny himself and then get up every single day and take up his cross, which is the language of death, and die to whatever it is that he would rather do so that he can follow me. And for the last, well, three chapters now, I guess it is, or thereabouts, we've been talking about it. We've barely reached the middle of the conversation. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to die to yourself and then to get up, to deny, to get up then and to die again and again and again that you might follow Jesus? Well, what we're going to see today is that following Jesus means, and this is a biggie, this is a big one, it means learning how to live this day in light of the great and final day to come. Do you follow that? It means learning how to get up every single morning, having denied myself and committed myself to this process, to then getting up every single morning, okay, and learning how to live this day in light of the great and final day to come. And the great and final day to come is the day of the return of Jesus. Jesus, God made man, entered into this humanity, clothing himself in our humanity through a supernatural conception. He has come. And every time we come to Christmas, we need to be reminded that he has come and he's promised to come again. And what will that great and final day look like? Well, it depends on who you are, but let's start with the followers of Christ. It will be a great and final day in a very wonderful sense for us. It will be the great and final day of our vindication. It will be the day upon which the lives that we live in this world for Jesus Christ will finally and fully be vindicated. They will be justified. They will make sense to the rest of the watching world that in their day and in ours looked upon us here and thought we were nuts. Seriously. It will be the day in which every sacrifice you make for Christ 
is vindicated. Every suffering you endure for Christ is vindicated. Every rejection, every scornful look, everything that you lay your life down and give away for the sake of Jesus living for that last day will suddenly make perfect sense. Like the world will go, good grief, they were right. There's no gloating in that, incidentally. But they were right. You know, Paul comes to us and he says, let me tell you what your life ought to look like to the world. He says, if Jesus Christ is not raised, if this gospel is not true, if he's not who he says he is, if he didn't do what he said he was going to do, and if there's no final day coming, our lives as Christian people are among all the people groups of all of humanity, the most to be pitied. What does that say about how we ought to be living You've given it all away. You're living for a day that's not coming. Therefore, it's of of all the lives that you could have lived. That's the most pitiful. But if the day comes, it's the most wonderful. So there you have it. It's a great and final day of vindication. It's a great and final day of exaltation. Jesus comes to us and says, let me tell you about the economy of following me. Okay, those who are last, when? Today. This life. Here and now. We'll be first. And those who are first will be last. It's curious. It will be a great and final day of reward where we enter into the infinite and eternal reward that God, by His grace, has purchased for us through His Son and freely grants to us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now compare that to this day, okay? Just compare it to every day you you have in this life. Forever and it doesn't end. It just forever and I just keep going, and then it gets irritating. Forever and ever and ever, like we could sit here all day and night and for all of eternity and just say forever. You get the idea? It's a a remarkable day, a great and final day. But for those who do not follow Jesus, and it's good that you're seated, it will be a great and final day in a very different way. It will be a day of great terror. It will be a day of great judgment. It will be a day of great suffering. It will be a day of great mourning, a day of great weeping, a day of great gnashing of teeth in agony and forever. And I know that some of you are thinking, good grief, I've never been to this church before. This is nuts. Sounds crazy, right? Like, Tom, you had too much coffee. I mean, what's the deal? must be the cold medicines that you're taking because nobody talks like that. Well, almost nobody I think not to use that language would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do. And here's why. Because that is the language of Jesus. I didn't come up with it. The man from heaven, the judge of that day, the one who alone knows, doesn't hide it from us. And that's a good thing, don't you think? So those who follow Jesus are people who learn to live today in light of the great and final day. And if you're wondering if that's what you're doing, that's kind of the natural question I think that that statement produces. All right, here's what that kind of life looks like. If you're living today for that great and final day, that kind of life looks like a life of integrity as opposed to a life of hypocrisy. And here's what I mean by that. It looks like a life in which who you are out here is exactly the same as who you are in here. External and internal, complete consistency at all times, in all situations, and with 
all people. And if you just work it through, it kind of makes sense why that would be. That would be the case because, listen, you're not living for anything in this world. You're living for Christ. You're not living for this day. You're living for Him. He is your vindication, and it's going to happen for you on that day. He is your exaltation, and that's coming for you on that day. He is your great and infinite and eternal reward, and you will enjoy that forever and ever and ever and ever and ever on that day. So why would you posture in this life? Why would you think something in here that you don't say out here? Why would you feel something in here and then emote very differently out here? Why would you desire passionately to do something in here, but not do it for fear that, you know, I mean, hey, you know, what what are people going to think? Or why would you passionately desire not to do something, but do it anyway? If he's your vindication. If he, well, is your exaltation. If he is your reward. If you've got your value system in such a way that you're living today, not for the opinions of people in this world. I mean, it's not like you're out to offend anybody, certainly, but, but that doesn't govern you. Not for the things of this world. Not that there's anything wrong with having things in this world. You need them in a practical basis, but they don't govern you. But instead, you're living for that day. You're living for Him. If that's what you're doing... Then down here in this day, inside and out, same person. But if you really don't believe that that day is ever going to come, or if you value the things of this world and the people of this world and the opinions of this world, this day and all that it entails more than that day and all that it entails, then the truth is you'll end up pretending all the time. You know, you'll be measuring people's opinions. You'll be measuring stuff in this world. How will this affect me? How will that affect me? What happens if I do this and all that kind of stuff? And the reality is you'll start saying things out here that you don't really believe in here. You'll start emoting in a certain way out here that you don't really feel in here. You'll start doing things out here you don't want to do in here or not doing things out here that you know to be right. Following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of that great and final day, and here's what it looks like, a life of integrity as opposed to a life of hypocrisy, and that's the topic that Luke takes up again right out of the mouth of Jesus as we pick up our study in Luke 12, beginning in verse 1, where he starts with this. He says, in the meantime, okay, that's actually really a very important little phrase, and here's why, because it sets the context for the entire conversation that we're about to have. The context is persecution, and I say that because in the meantime, refer back to the last two verses of the previous chapter, in which we learn that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel in that day, at this point in the narrative of the life of Jesus, have come to the point where they are actively looking to catch Jesus in some kind of a blasphemous statement that they're hoping to get him to make, so that they can put him to death. Life and death kind of persecution. Now, why is that important? Because there is nothing like persecution to expose to me and to you which day we're living for. That's it. So I'm going to try out some examples. Okay, hey, Tom, I would like to carefully, to respectfully, to honestly, to lovingly, to thoughtfully find a way, not obnoxiously, but find a way to take a stand for Jesus in my family, but you don't know my family. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what that's going to do to Thanksgiving. 
You have no idea the ridicule, the scorn, the anger, the rejection, and all that stuff that I'm going to feel if I do that. And I just want to stop for a minute and make it a little more real. Yes, I do. Beth and I have that exact situation in our family with two very important people who think I'm nuts for what I'm doing, and they're nice about it, but their love is a love that is earned, and that too is known, which means you don't want to run afoul of them, or you'll be rejected by them. And guess what? They don't want to talk about Jesus. I think we're crazy. But not talking about Jesus with them is the most unloving possible thing that I can do. And I can either suffer their gaze and whatever happens now in this day, or I can live for that day, that either they will enjoy as a great day with us, or at least in that day we'll be fully vindicated in that they'll say, you know what, they actually loved us enough to endure what they knew was coming to share this with us. Good grief, we didn't even think this day was coming. But here it is, and all right, well, they tried. That's very real to me. You say, you know what, Tom, I'd like to be more generous. I'd like to give more money away. I'd like to help the poor more. I'd like to give more to the church. I'd like to be more generous with people, you know, as the Spirit leads me to hand money. But I'm telling you, I don't know what that's going to do to my plans. I know what that's going to do to your plans. It's going to mess them up. It will. You know what? You will probably end up driving a different kind of car for a heck of a lot longer if you're as generous as the gospel calls you to be. If you're living for that day as opposed to this with your money, it's going to change your financial planning. You might live in a different neighborhood. You're going to look around your house and go, look at all the things that we can do but for the fact that we're committed to this. You will not be able to do things for your kids that you want to do for your kids because of this generosity. I know what that's like, too. Remember a couple of years ago, Morgan was getting ready to go to school. She's our oldest. She's just finishing up her sophomore year now. But uh, we went to a private school and looked at it. And so we took the tour, and it was amazing. It was beautiful. I'm thinking, oh, man, I would love to go to the school. This thing's amazing. We get to the end. They get us in the room, $48,000. I just started laughing. I'm like, well, we're done. You know, let's go. We, got none of we can't do this, you know. But what that did was it alarmed me. I'm like, good grief. How much does this college thing cost? And they said, oh, well, listen, we can bring the price down. There's all these different ways that you can get scholarships and grants and, the, you know, whatever. I don't know. There are people who specialize in helping you get money for college. And they're really good at it. So we set a telephone appointment with this person three weeks down the road. We got all of our financial stuff in order. We're sitting there talking with this guy. And about a third of the way into the conversation, I realized how the conversation was going to end. And I said, you know what? I think I can save us some time. I said, I think I know where this is going to end. This is going to end with you saying that we don't qualify for any of this because we take too much of our discretionary income and give it away. He said, well, how much do you give? And I told him, he said, you're right. That's how the conversation's going to end. I said, okay, but here's what you people need to understand. We do that before we pay our mortgage. We do that before we buy food. We do that before we put gas in the cars. We do that before we pay tuition. We do that as a matter of holy and the highest priority financially in our house. That is a higher obligation to us than any single other thing. And he's like, yeah, but... These companies don't share that value system. 
mean, that's nice. We applaud you. But here's what you get to do. You get to pay for it twice because you give it away and then you're denied access to these funds. So then you pay that too. What day are you living for? Where's your treasure? It's pretty real, isn't it? You say, you know what? I'd like to start a Bible study in my office. I feel like the Spirit is prompting me to do that. There are men here in this church who have done that, business owners, friends of mine. And you think, yeah, I don't know that I want to do that, though, because everybody's going to think I'm the religious nut. You know, now I'm the religious nut in the office. What is my boss going to think if I want to do this? Or maybe you're the business owner. What are my employees going to think? Because here's what's going to happen. Inevitably, you're going to have to fire somebody. And now, when, they, when I fire that person, guess what they're going to sue me for? Well, at least in part, they're going to claim that the reason I fired them is because they didn't come to my Bible study. Or maybe they came a couple of times, and then they left. And you know what? That is an actual possibility. There are real risks in that. So what day are you living for? just keep going. Maybe you're like a fifth grade boy and you get invited to a birthday party and everybody goes into the room of the kid who's having the birthday party and it's a sleepover and the kid has a computer in his room and there's no internet security in the house, which I'm sorry, we need to be very careful with as parents. Computer in room and no internet security, both I think, can become an issue. And everybody huddles around the computer and looks at stuff that, you know, you know that you ought not to be looking at. What are you going to do? It is tough to walk away. Ten years old. Hey, listen, it's hard when you're 50. Everybody's laughing, everybody's giggling, and it's a big joke. It's not a big joke. It's not. Christ died for that. There's forgiveness for that. There's healing for that. But what day are you going to live for? when that happens. And the time to decide the answer to all these things, guys, is now, not later. It's not when your, your daughter goes to school and now you're trying to find a way to afford it. No, you, you make your commitment early. See, so then when you get there, it's already defining what you're going to do. It's not when you go to the birthday party, then you decide, oh man, you know, what am I going to... No, you've decided in advance what you're going to do. Now you need the Spirit's power and He'll speak to this in a minute, I think. To do it, yes. You make the decisions, and then by the Spirit's power, you live them out. In the meantime, speaks of persecution. And man, that is a revealing thing. So Luke says that in the meantime, while the scribes and Pharisees are trying to find a way to, you know, accuse Jesus and put him to death, and then also, he says, notice this, when so many thousands of people, in the Greek language, it it just literally says when tens of thousands of people, it, it grabs the highest number that language was able to communicate and throws that in here. Picture that crowd. When so many thousands of people had gathered together around Jesus that they were literally trampling upon one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, and guess where his disciples were? They weren't all gathered together around him. They were interspersed in the crowd. So he says to his disciples in the hearing of the entire crowd, and now notice what he says. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees of the guys who are actively trying to put Jesus to death. And he knows that they're actively trying to put him to death. He's already told his disciples what's going to happen to him at the end of this journey when he gets to Jerusalem. So what day is he living for? This one or that one? And for whom, incidentally, 
is he living for that day? Certainly not for himself. He lived this day in light of that day for me and for you. Knowing that it would cost him a lot more than feeling a bit awkward. Then maybe kind of ruffling some feathers, man. Then, oh, you know what? We can't afford to do that. Oh, you know, I feel a little bit weird about this Bible study, but I'm just going to go with it. Or walking away and enduring the scorn and the names, perhaps, of your fellow students. It will cost him his life, and he knows it. He doesn't ask us to do anything more than what he himself has already done for every one of us. And so he says, look, in front of tens of thousands of people, he calls out the Pharisees and says they're a bunch of hypocrites. He's not posturing. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and there, now he names it, which is hypocrisy. And in saying this, he's telling us something, first of all, about hypocrisy. He's saying, look, you know what? It's like leaven. Okay, well, what is that? It's like yeast. You take it and you mix it into a dump of, I mean, a lump, not a dump, a lump of dough, like for bread. And it ferments it. But, but here's the telling piece. Leaven is virtually undetectable. Like, you don't even know if it's in there. So if I gave you two lumps of dough, and I said, all right, which one has the leaven? I mean, the best you can do is eeny, meeny, miny, miny. There's no way of knowing until you put it in the oven and then watch how it plays out. That's it. That's the test. And not only is it virtually undetectable, once it's in there, you can't get it out. Like, if I mixed it all up and gave you the lump and said, okay, I want you to get all the leaven out for me, that's just ridiculous. You cannot do it. He's coming to us and he's saying, let me tell you something, first of all, about hypocrisy. You can't detect it in the lump of dough that is you. You can't see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, or touch it in yourself. It's not until it begins to show up in your life, if you will, that you can even begin to sense that perhaps it's there, and even then, you're the last person to see it. Isn't that true? Like, we all know who the hypocrites are, guys, and it's never us. Do you notice that? Tom, make me a list of hypocrites. Well, sure. I mean, there's this person, there's this. I'm never on my list. You're never on your list. It's a dangerous sickness. Oh, and again, once it's in there, well, you can't get it out on your own. And so first of all, he's telling us something about hypocrisy, but then in warning us to beware of it, that's what this is, a solemn warning. What is he saying? He's saying that all of us are subject to it, that all of us have a weakness for it. That if we're not vigilant against it, it will overtake us and we won't even know it. And now he begins to tell us why that's such a big deal. And look at how he analyzes this. Don't miss it because he analyzes this in light of that day and this one. For he now says this, he says that nothing is covered up, meaning by us, on this day that will not be revealed completely and fully by God on that great and final day. Or nothing is hidden, he continues, by us on this day that will not be known by absolutely everyone on that great and final day. Therefore, Jesus says, whatever you have said in the dark, which is to say in the secret places of your life on this day, shall be heard in the light out in the open publicly on that day. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms in the here and now shall be proclaimed on the rooftops, on the housetops, in the then and there. That is an absolutely terrifying thought. 
isn't it? So what's the cure for that? Well, first I want to talk about where forgiveness is found for that. Because we're all hypocrites, guys. We all do it. Every single one of us. It's been interesting to watch this deal with Sony go down. You know, I don't know if you've been watching that at all, but I guess the North Korean government, is that actually who it was? I don't know. Kind of got all into all their emails and databases and all that stuff. And so now they're releasing tens of thousands of emails in a searchable format. So hallelujah, if you're a Sony exec. And what's happening? Their inner thoughts are being revealed to the world about each other. And it is undoing the place. As executives hear what other executives actually think about them and their intellect and their ability and their ambitions and their race. I mean, even racist statements. It's unbelievable what's being revealed. It's a very minor example of what the Lord is talking about. Good grief, if all your emails were published, forget your emails. You know what? If every thought, if every intent, if every word, if every motive, if every ambition of your heart was truly known, and it is, can you imagine the inconsistencies? It's overwhelming. So what do we do? We run to Christ who lived the only unhypocritical life ever. And for what? He did that in this day for my and your that day to purchase a people for himself who are forgiven and clean and washed of all of their admitted hypocrisies and every other form of sin. He suffered and died to pay the penalty for all my hypocrisy and for all of yours that we might through faith in him be forgiven and washed of it and have a great and final day indeed one that we can look forward to and enjoy. And so then I think forgiveness is found in this for Jesus. But the cure for hypocrisy, that was the original question, is found, well, again, in learning how to live this day in in light of the next, which is essentially what Jesus says next when he says this in verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, and then he lays hold of the thing that we typically, at least, value most in this life. And in doing this, he comprehends every lesser thing. So he grabs hold of our physical life. It's like, we'll give everything away, and that's the last thing we want to give away. Isn't that true? I understand that. So that's the one he grabs and comprehends everything else in the process. Reputation, money, whatever. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, meaning your body, your husband's body, your wife's body, your kids' bodies. Good grief. Your friends, your coworkers. Anybody, do not fear those who kill the body, and then after that have nothing more that they can do to you. Okay, well, who is that? Well, in his day, it's the scribes, the Pharisees, the Romans, but in our day, who is it? At least for some Christians on this planet, it's organizations like ISIS and Boko Haram and so forth. He's saying, look, the reality is that there are people in this world and in my life and in yours who can take things from you, and in some cases, even your life from you and will under certain circumstances, but they can't touch your eternity. They can't do a thing about this day for you. That is secure for you and Jesus. So you know what? Don't worry about them. Don't fear them. Don't become overly concerned about them because you're not living for this day. 
The day you're living for is secure in Christ. And as a result, when you're persecuted, you don't have to compromise. You don't have to deny. You don't have to posture to hang on to something that isn't your goal anyway. Your goal has been given to you. That's the gospel. And so Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do to you, but instead I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed your body, has authority to then also cast you into hell. You're like, oh my goodness, that's politically incorrect, very uncomfortable. I know, but Jesus said it. We ought to consider it carefully. I will warn you whom you are to fear, Jesus says. The man from heaven, the bridge between the two, the one who knows, says, fear him who after he has killed your body has authority to then also cast you into hell. All right, so who's that? Well, it's God. And just in case we missed it, he says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And the very clear implication of that is, and then also go out and live in light of that fear. When? Right now. Not the fear of men but the fear of the Lord. So here's what that looks like. It looks like you humbly and and carefully and strategically and respectfully, and yet clearly taking a stand for Jesus in your family and letting the chips fall where they may. It looks like you being as generous as the Lord calls you to be, and maybe not leaving so much behind for the kids when it's all over or being denied now of things that you'd rather do and working longer and having a different retirement than you've envisioned and worked for. That's a this-day thing. It means starting the Bible study in your office, if, you know, that's what the Lord calls you to do. It means learning to follow the Spirit, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpopular, even when you're the only fifth-grade kid to walk away. And it means if you're ever put into the position where you've got to choose between denying Jesus or losing your life, it means saying at the expense of your life, that the most valuable thing to you in this life is not your life, but it's Christ. That's what our brothers and sisters all over the place right now are bowing down before and having their heads caught off in light of. So then to further encourage us to that end, Jesus says in verse 6, He says, are not five sparrows, the cheapest bird that you could buy in Jesus' day. And here's why you would buy them. You would buy them, they're they're a dime a dozen, and you would take them down to the temple, and you would have them offered as a sacrifice for you at the expense of their lives. He says, look, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies for next to nothing? They're worthless, is the idea. And yet, Jesus says, not one of them even, these worthless birds, is forgotten before God. But you kind of want to pause and go, yeah, but that doesn't mean they're rescued by God. I mean, it seems to me that whatever this remembering that God does of them certainly doesn't save their life. They're still sold in this day. They're still taken down to the temple in this day. They're still sacrificed at the expense of their life in that day. Are they not? Yes. But here's the point. If God remembers their sacrifice how much more will he remember yours? And in fact, so intently is he focused on you in this day, That Jesus says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered by God. And so then he says, fear not when you make sacrifices. Fear not when you suffer rejection and scorn. Fear not when you take risks and lose. Fear not. 
for you are of more value than many, many, many sparrows. And God, who is so intently focused on you that he knows how many hairs you have on your head, will take notice of everything you do for him in worship in this life. And guess when he will reward you? Infinitely and eternally. Last day. The final day. The only day, honestly, that in the end matters. For you are more valuable than many sparrows. To which he adds, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men on this day and this life, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God on that day and that life. But the one who denies me before men on this day and this life, because they fear men more than they do God, or because they value this day more than the last one, will be denied before the angels of God on that day and that life by me, says Jesus. To which he adds, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is to say against me, Jesus, will be forgiven. And that is a beautiful thing because we all of us need that. But then he adds this and he says, but, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, which also kind of makes sense if you think about it. Because biblically, this is the way that it works. You cannot come to the Father whom we have offended with our sin except through faith in the Son who is the way and the truth and the life And no one can come to the Father except through him, another incredibly politically incorrect statement. But if it's true, is it offensive or is it gracious? So you cannot come to the Father except through the Son, but you cannot come to the Son if you reject the clear and unmitigated testimony of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to who the Son is, to what the Son has done, to what the Son evermore will yet do for me and for you, for all who have faith in Him on that last day. So if you blaspheme the Spirit by rejecting His clear and unambiguous testimony to whom the Son is, you are cut off from the only source of forgiveness, and that it's Jesus. But if you receive the Spirit's witness and you bring your sin and self to Christ, you confess how, you know what, I'm a hypocrite. (laughs) Well, you know what, get in line. I mean, you know, a lot of good company there. And I need to be washed. I need to be forgiven and made clean. Then you will know forgiveness and salvation and eternal life both on this day and on that one. And that day will be the greatest day for you. And here's what else you'll know. You'll know, I think, what to say and what to do when, you hear the word when, it's the operative word, persecution comes your way, which is how Jesus kind of closes out this teaching in verses 11 and 12. He says, and when, not if, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, and that's exactly what happened to his disciples if you've read the book of Acts, but But this kind of stuff happens to us too. When you are persecuted, when you're scorned and rejected is the idea. For my sake, Jesus is saying, well, you know what? Don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. But the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I think the implication here is that he will also empower you to say it. It's pretty cool. I shared part of the story with uh, some of you earlier um, last week. But back in the early to mid-16th century, when John Calvin was exiled from his native country of France, he went to Switzerland, which was neutral territory in the religious war that was occurring at that time, and he established a church and he established a seminary. 
And to give you an idea of how hostile the rest of the countries were toward the graduates of his seminary who were going out with the true gospel as missionaries. He's training them up. He's sending them out. The average life expectancy for a graduate from Calvin Seminary was six months. Six months. So that sort of changes the dynamic of graduation day a bit, doesn't it? I mean, really? Son, I was going to buy you a car, but, you know, what would I do with it in six months? What day were these guys living for? It's pretty stark, isn't it? So there are documents that have survived, and some of the documents are letters that were written by kind of a group of these guys that had been rounded up in France, and they were all sitting in prison together, and they were awaiting execution by means of a guillotine. They're going to have their heads cut off. And they're writing to Calvin, and they're saying, all right, we're going to have a shot at saying something here before they cut our heads off. We're not going to deny Jesus. We're just wondering if you have any thoughts on what it is that we should say. Calvin wrote back, and he just gave them this verse. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will not abandon you. He lives in you. He's sought you out for Himself. He's brought you to the Son who has secured your eternity. The Holy Spirit, that Spirit, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of that great and final day, and it looks like a life of integrity as opposed to a life of hypocrisy, which makes sense. It does. If Christ is your reward, if that day is the one you're living for, you won't compromise who you are here. You'll be the same person inside and out at all times with all people in every circumstance. You just, you will. But if that day doesn't exist for you, then it'll be a different story. You'll give way to the leaven of hypocrisy. And here's the danger with hypocrisy. It's virtually imperceptible. You don't even know you have it. Once it's in you, you can't get it out on your own. And that last day that actually is going to come will be a day on which it's all revealed. So what day are you living for? This one or that one? And here's what I want you to do, a little exercise. I want you to take some time this afternoon, find some place to be alone, and I want you to lay your life before the Lord in categories. Here's my marriage. Here's my parenting. Here's my relationships. Here's my business. Here are my finances. Here are just the categories. You know, even the ones you don't want to lay before him. You know which ones those are, right? Just put them all out there. And ask the Spirit to reveal to you where the inconsistencies are. And maybe ask a good friend. Oftentimes I find the Spirit speaks most loudly to me through one of them. Where are these inconsistencies, Lord? And by the way, I am powerless to remove this from me. But the Spirit isn't. So ask Him to. Ask Him to teach you how to live today in light of the day that is coming. And it is the day of your vindication. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, which is not politically correct. 
but is truthful. It doesn't seek to make us feel good about ourselves. It seeks to make us feel good about our Savior. It doesn't pacify us with words that make us to feel safe when indeed we're not in our sin. It gives us direct words of hope that bring us to real safety found only through faith in Jesus. And it doesn't leave us without a word about this life either. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the one who came into this world to live this day knowing it would cost him absolutely everything before he even showed up that we might stand with him on that great and final day and receive by his grace a full vindication for any sacrifice, for any suffering, for any rejection, for the life that we live in the here and now that is to look kind of nuts, apart from the reality of that day and of that Savior, that we might receive his exaltation, that we might receive his infinite and eternal reward, impress the realities of the invisible on us now that we might live in the visible accordingly. Do these things, we pray, for your glory, that many might come to know the Savior as we lift him up by allowing ourselves to be put down. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.